Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of M&A, Here's the Deal. Whether you are aspiring financiers, M&A enthusiasts, or seasoned M&A veterans, we hope to share perspectives that you will find insightful. Throughout our podcast series, we'll be covering some of the most interesting trends and deals happening all around the world. We hope that you like our show, and if you do, please like and subscribe. Now, without further ado, I'd like to introduce your host, Mukhtar Ahmed, and our guests and good friends to this podcast, Henry Lacey, Brad Eckert, and Stephanie Sparling. Mokhtadar, Henry, Brad, and Stephanie are all leaders in the financial services transactions field based across the entire U.S. and New York, Chicago, Phoenix, and San Francisco. Thank you to our executive producers and creative directors, Anton Rasadkin, George Zhu, and Vidika Bhatia for their support in producing the show. Now for our first topic, we want to dive right into the biggest threat or greatest opportunity looming over the global markets. The one and the only Brexit. Terrific. Thank you, uh, George and, and Anton, for helping us put this together. My name is Mokhtad Ramad, and I'm part of the Transactions Group, and um, I'm excited to be part of this team here. Um, today, we'll go through Brexit. Obviously, this is a significantly uh, large topic to discuss, but we'll group this into uh, key three areas that we can talk a bit further about. Topic one, we'll spend about five minutes on and highlight how we got here. How, and this is really a quick intro to Brexit in case you've not been following what's happening. Topic two, about 10 more minutes after that, we'll talk a little bit about Brexit options, the different options in terms of what may come ahead of us, and what's the likelihood of those different options, and what does that mean uh, in, if each of those options were to take place. Finally, we'll have a much more open-ended informal predictions discussion, and we'll explore the different uh, consequences resulting from Brexit that none of us can predict, but all of us can opine on. With that, I'll turn it over to Henry to add uh, his thoughts related to overview on Brexit. Thanks, Mukhtata. Hi, it's Henry Lacey here. I'm part of the transactions team along with Mac. So how did we get here? David Cameron, who used to be the leader of the Conservative Party, really promised the referendum on Brexit so that he could put his party uh, back um, to make sure that he could control the rebels in his party because what he wanted to do was hang on to the leadership of his party um, back when he was in alliance with the Liberal Democrats. He never believed he was going to win a majority at the next election because no reigning Conservative or any Prime Minister had won an increased majority for many years. So therefore, when he went to the polls in 2015, he was very surprised to see an increase in the majority that he got. Um, so therefore, the pledge to hold, a, to hold a referendum had to come true. So that was the primary reason why the UK went for a referendum. What what was remiss, though, was it was a clear in-out referendum. There was no explanation, really, what out meant, which has led to the angst over the last uh, three and a half years. So people were voting out, and they didn't understand what it means. Did it mean out, but in a customs union, or out and some form of other relationship, or out, out, and there was no there was no relationship, and the barriers went up, and there was full customs. Uh, you you were required to fill in customs forms. You were required for visas to go to to travel abroad. 
if you recall on the, after the the morning after the vote despite Cameron saying that he would even in the event of a no vote he would stay and see it through at 8am on the following morning he was on the steps of Downing Street and he resigned um, this then rapidly plunged the Conservative Party into a leadership election there were a number of leadership candidates that uh, were v- rapidly whittled down to two, which were Theresa May and Andrea Leibson. And following some injudicious remarks by Andrea Leibson in the Sunday newspaper, she rapidly stood aside and Theresa May was coronated to be the leader. Theresa May um, had a very certain style of leadership, which meant that she governed without consultation and very in, in, in a very insular fashion, which led her to not consult with her colleagues and really drove a Brexit deal that people didn't enjoy or didn't didn't warm to, coupled with an election in 2017, which she subsequently lost her majority and had to strike a deal with the DUP of Northern Ireland. All of this meant that she had three attempts to get her deal through the Parliament of the United Kingdom and failed on each time. Whilst the number of people voting against it fell, she still failed. And then in June of 2019, she stood aside. Boris Johnson has a very bombastic and aggressive style of um, leadership, and he's quite commonly known as the UK version of Donald Trump. Um, so he's led he's led the, uh, the, the UK since mid-July, and he's been back to Brussels, renegotiated, what many call a Theresa, deal, a Theresa May deal light, um, but he's given away some key things like a border down the Irish Sea um, and other things that have proved very unpopular. However, um, he very tried very hard to force this through the parliaments of the UK. Um, and whilst he got it approved for second reading, which isn't necessarily approval, it meant that it could proceed Parliament then approved, didn't approve the timetable for the for the process, which then meant that he couldn't leave on the 31st of October. So we 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 then found ourselves in a position of going back to the country and having a le- having an election. So here here we are at time of recording, starting the election campaign in the UK. So notwithstanding, we have a fixed term Parliament Act where we should only have an election every five years. We're now in our third election in three in four, in five years. So, really, that's where we find ourselves in this Brexit debacle. Mac, back to you. Terrific, thanks, Henry. Thoughts on um, obviously both parties are asking for a early election, right? So, I think both of them think that they'll end up with a with a larger majority to drive their agenda forward. Do you do you have any thoughts you wanted to share uh, related to kind of how that may be building, especially as you think about the point in time polls related to Brexit in 2016 versus how the polls are showing public attitude and sentiment towards it? Great question. So you know, with, within the UK, there's three main parties, the Conservative Party, the Labour Party and the, and the Liberal Democrats. The Liberal Democrats clearly have a have a very clear policy that they will stand to if if they win they will revoke article 50 which is the governing legislation which allows the e the european uh, union withdrawal bill um, 
and allows the UK to leave the EU, they will revoke that and the UK will remain in the EU. Now, the likelihood of them winning winning majority is very slim. They've been a minority party for many, many years. The, the peak number of seats they've ever won, I think, in the last, in, in modern times, is circa 50, 50 52. Um, the current opposition, the Labour Party, led by Jeremy Corbyn, um, has many uh, rifts and factions with it from people who want a second referendum to people who want to remain to people who want to leave. And what's interesting, particularly about the Labour heartlands where people vote, is they were a predominantly leave that they that they pro- voted predominantly to leave back in 2016. Uh, so over the last three and a half years, the Labour Party has had many different positions on this and. Jeremy Corbyn now finds himself in a position where he said he would go back to um, the European Union, renegotiate a deal in three months and then put it back to the UK for them to vote on that deal. So the the option would be to leave with Jeremy Corbyn's new renegotiated deal or not leave at all. However, what the Labour Party aren't saying is what they would support. So you could theoretically get to a situation where Jeremy Corbyn renegotiates a deal and then refuses to support it in a referendum, which causes the press in the UK to have much fun with that position. And then you have Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party who are standing with his newly negotiated deal. And then interestingly, you've got Nigel Farage who many believe have driven this and you know was the was the reason why david cameron drove the original referendum he's now saying that if boris ditches his deal and goes for a a pure hard brexit or a no deal then he won't field any candidates from the brexit party against him um then you you would you would see potentially a very clear majority for the conservative party in that instance um and finally, I think in this area, whilst whilst they're not an, a, a UK-wide party, you have the Scottish Nationalists, uh, which are led by Nicola Sturgeon, who are pushing to separate themselves from the UK and potentially could win up to 60 seats and could actually be some form of power broker in the next government. Because if the Labour Party don't win enough seats to form a government, they could potentially form an alliance with the Scottish Nationalist Party to try and force through a, a process where they stop Brexit, but in the in the interim, they would then offer a second referendum to Scotland on ind- independence, which potentially they could, they could win, which would break the UK up. Terrific. Thank you, Henry. I think that's a, that's a great explanation. And I think the, the essence of this is, I think, the level of uncertainty in terms of what could happen and uh, the different forks in the road that could actually take place depending on the outcome of the elections. There are just too many. So more broadly to the, the panelists we have today, the question I wanted to ask is, how should businesses think about this? How should they think about planning for a situation like that? In particular, um, potentially leveraging m and as an option to help uh, position themselves effectively uh, for a future that may be so uncertain. Thanks, Matt. Great, great question. So I think if the UK goes down a Brexit route and you have a trading barrier between them and the rest of the EU, because at the present 
the EU is the largest trading partner of the UK, then clearly the, the best way around that could potentially be to undertake acquisitions in Europe because then you can manufacture your product in Europe and sell it in Europe without going through a customs process, etc., um, to make sure that you you manage it that way. So you've got that um, that you, you've got that option to to manage it that way. The other option clearly is you know the the UK has been very clear that the island of Ireland will remain intact, and whilst that they will not put a hard physical border on the island of Ireland. Under Johnson's deal, there's potentially a sea border. Um, I think that has to remain up for discussion. So there's potentially routes in that way. But, you know, for raw, for raw materials, etc., that there also has to be think, you also have to think about channels and ways of getting that into the UK, etc. And I think it's also worth pointing out that people talk a, talk a lot about no deal. Um, no deal is actually doesn't mean that there is no deal. What that actually means is people leave or, or the UK would leave without a deal. Everything reser, reser, reverts, sorry, everything would revert to world trade organization terms at that point in time. But all you're actually doing is starting negotiating at that point. So you still need to do a deal. So no deal is a starting point. It's not the end point. That that's a very important point, Henry. So I was reading a bit about that as well, and I think one of the kind of live consequences of that that was being discussed was the the competition and markets authority in UK thinking about um, a, a no deal outcome, and in a very tactical way, uh, kind of an example to think about what that outcome may look like. Uh, they were considering a situation where a hard exit happens. And a lot of the larger transactions that are not within their jurisdiction or within the jurisdiction of the EU regulator will suddenly now uh, be part of the transactions they need to manage. So when we need to think about, um, when we think about companies uh, preparing for larger M&As, uh, particularly as it concerns the UK market, um, one of the key lessons here or thoughts to consider is to think about engaging regulators that may be shifting. Particularly, I think if a UK regulator becomes important to you um, in an unplanned way, that may be, uh, result in significant delays to actually executing the transaction. The um, the second question I had was, um, and uh, broadly for the audience, um, when we think about the different uh, countries that may benefit or may end up uh, in a in a negative setting coming out from the no deal outcome um, who are those countries what should the the companies uh, that may be interested in the uk market be thinking about uh, as as it relates to those countries so let me let me reframe the questions maybe first let's let's think about and and see from the analysis that others have done who are the biggest losers and winners from the countries involved uh, that relate to the UK market, just from a trade perspective. Yeah, Mac, it's it's Brad. I was uh, actually kind of surprised to see 
just how much that the uh, that the Pacific Rim countries were uh, intended to benefit from a from a hard break here, um, as well as South Africa. Uh, wasn't quite a surprise to see that uh, some of the European you know countries would be losers uh, in that scenario. But the uh, the fact that uh, Japan and Thailand were both third and fourth on the list of you know winners uh, within the top five. Uh, was was a little surprising to me, just uh, given the geographic uh, distance um, and the increase in exports that they uh, they expected. But again, it's a, probably a testament to their trading power as well. I think also, Mac, if you think uh, you know, everyone vaunts the 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 U.S. U.K. special relationship. There's there's estimated the five point three billion increase in exports for the U.S. Um, much has been made, as, as I touched on earlier, around the, the National Health Service, particularly in the pharmaceutical sector. So, you know, potentially the increase in drug prices and the, the ability for the U.S. pharmaceutical sector to uh, drive deeper into um, the, the National Health Service, which is predominantly uh, at the minute uses generic drugs, etc. I think the other area that people need to focus on is China. You know, with the U.S. the U.S.-China trade war at the minute, China is looking for additional outlets for its goods and services. So, you know, people forecast what 10.2 billion increase in exports for China into into the U.K. And you know, if you've traveled to China, if you, sorry, if you've traveled traveled to the U.K. recently, you would have seen that many of the U.K. stores gear up around Golden Week and Chinese New Year. And, you know, welcome, welcome Chinese visitors with uh, Mandarin and Cantonese speakers. They take WePay, uh, Alipay, etc. And, you know, Selfridges, Harrods and, and the big high street stores now frequently export into China. So, you know, China, uh, Chinese and Chinese middle class and wealthy people see the UK now as a good destination for for luxury and high end shopping and also for depositing uh, surplus funds and buying real estate, etc. Terrific, thanks, thanks, Brad and and Henry. Yeah, that's definitely uh, surprising to see some of those countries show up on that list. So next, I think as we think about um, any of these outcomes um, coming out, uh, UK will likely be somewhat separate from EU. So when we think about now from the perspective of EU. I wanted to explore thought, what's next for EU? Is this going to result in a domino effect? Is there further fracture of EU that's expected from um, a Brexit? Um, so, I mean, clearly over recent recent years and since 2008, you've obviously seen a number of shifting sands in the EU. You've had the financial crisis in Ireland, Spain, Greece, etc., as they've struggled to get back on their feet. And, you know, still in Greece, there's much anti-EU EU sentiment. Um, and even in the last couple of weeks, there was a report that without the, um, without the funds that the UK pay into the EU, that potentially... Uh, Germany will have to double their will have to double their contribution into the EU. So you know, as somebody who spent much of his life living in in the UK and an observer of the sort of European politics, 
you know, the, 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 the onward march towards integration in the European Union, um, I think could potentially be slowed by, by Brexit. I think you've seen around the European Union, you know, if you look at Catalan in Spain, you know, they, they would like to be separate and, and, you know, there's a big separatist movement in Catalan, um, away from Spain. And you will see that, and, and you do see that in other countries as well. And, you know, there's a rise of far right nationalistic politics in a number of countries as a result. And you, you know, you can argue that's driven by Brexit. That's driven by a number of, of, of differing factors across the globe. Um, I think what will be, what will be interesting is, you know, and one, one of the main tenets of, David Cameron's position was always that people wanted reform in the European Union. They wanted it to go back to its original ideals of a trading bloc. They didn't want it to become a central bank or a, or a European army, etc. Um, and there was some truth in that. And I think when you look at the big tests of the European Union over the last 30, 40 years, at some points in its history, it, it has failed. Um, so, you know, without w- without it changing and reforming, I think there will be a push for a change or or, or a different direction in terms of the way that it goes without Euro- without the UK. However, I would say that you know, since since Margaret Thatcher, the the the, the United Kingdom has always been a yeah, not not the most willing of participants in the European Union. So it's always sort of held its nose as as a member of the European Union. So um, you know, and that's been driven by a number of factors like the tabloid press and and a number of things. So it's always been half in and half out. So I think this is a natural conclusion to to that conversation and that debate. Terrific, Andrew. Thank, thanks, and I, I think definitely having a brother in supply chain, I guess, helps uh, helps keep you abreast of these things. <laughs> um, so, uh, going back to one of the points Brad made earlier, I think, and, and it was very insightful that uh, this is a the 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 impact is going to be different by sector, and and also by countries, right? The ones that do and don't take action, and how they are currently interrelated into this uh, mess. So, I was I was reading up on Bloomberg. And I came across an article, and I just wanted to get get you guys' perspective on some of the findings these guys had. It's a recent article in October, and it talks about how, uh, perhaps counterintuitively, the M&A volume has been significantly high between UK and US, uh, the cross-border M&A. In particular, the outbound M&A from UK, which to me particularly was surprising, has been uh, one of the highest, I think, since 2016. And it's uh, been driven by a, a, a significant number of small and large uh, uh, acquisitions. Conversely, I think the M and A the other way, UK, US to UK has been strong as well. Probably less so this year than it has been in 2018. But the targets in those um, in those uh, acquisitions have been, by and large, uh, tech targets. So US tech acquisitions tend to find a home in terms of targets in UK. So interesting findings. Uh, and I was curious if you guys had uh, thoughts, perspectives on why we may be seeing this. 
there's a Bloomberg article that talks about US-UK cross-border M&A. And the biggest finding they have is that the the UK outbound uh, acquisitions have been significant. Uh, they have probably been on the highest since 2016, uh, since the kind of Brexit mess started. So that was uh, quite interesting, especially given the pound's gotten weaker. And uh, I mean, the real theme here is that they're looking for uh, opportunities to position themselves uh, earlier in, in case Brexit happens. The second, conversely, the U.S. to U.K. acquisitions, they have not been as hot as they had been last year. But the big theme has been uh, acquiring and looking for targets uh, that are tech targets. So a majority of U.S. acquisitions, companies wanting to buy tech-related targets, seem to be finding uh, U.K. targets, tech targets, attractive. And I think the theme there may actually be one kind of evolved economy uh, maybe lower valuations from a from a weaker pound perspective, and also probably some level of labor market arbitrage. That's probably high skilled labor there, and fewer uh, fewer opportunities for them. So that's kind of the the background of the question. So may, maybe while we're thinking about that, we can jump to something else. Um, so we'll, one of the key things as we think about all this uncertainty and and how we put plans into place. Um, obvious consideration is hedging, hedging both from a business market perspective um, and more from a currency perspective. Uh, thoughts or, or ideas on what companies may be doing or should be doing in terms of preparing themselves from a hedging perspective? From a hedging perspective, a lot of companies after Brexit was announced began evaluating their plans and started moving staff and operations out of the UK to mitigate some of that risk. Some other things that companies really need to focus on are reviewing their existing vendor contracts along with their international contracts because there's going to be some renegotiation that's going to be required depending on changes to legislation. Companies will also want to review their employee nationalities to understand some of the tax concerns of doing business. I think companies will also need to take a look at their customer base to understand the impacts of doing business both inside and outside the UK. So a thorough governance review is needed to really understand the implications when they're renegotiating the terms of uh, some of those contracts especially when the agreement is finally put into place. Thanks, Stephanie. I think that's uh, that's really good insight. Great, terrific. So maybe just a couple of uh, questions to wrap this up. So Brad, let's say, uh, given kind of your central location uh, in terms of your geography personally in U.S., if I'm um, a leader of a small to medium-sized business sitting somewhere in uh, mid-market range from a business-sized perspective in middle America, why should I care about Brexit? Uh, terrific question, Mac. And and I will tell you because it is a global economy uh, and there is a ripple effect, uh, call it the, the butterfly effect or the ripple effect. But uh, in one way or another, um, you know, everybody gets impacted, you know, from, from a manufacturing sector perspective, um, we're certainly impacted 
impacted by by China and the and the impending trade war, but there is a significant amount of of business that's done with within the the European Community, Britain, uh, especially from a manufacturing perspective, uh, partnerships, uh, supply deals, trade deals uh, that are impacted by by what's happening with the UK right now. Um, and it may be to a, a varying effect, but but I will tell you, even in the the heartland of, of the U.S., where there is still a significant manufacturing base, um, you know the the economic and political uh, realities that are going on right now certainly end up affecting us in one way or the other. Whether or not it's companies looking to solutions in the in the Far East, as as we see from some of the potential uh, winners within the uh, you know, within a hard Brexit. Um, but um, it definitely is something that um, folks are having to take into account as they're as they're planning out their strategy and their you know their five and even longer term term plans. So um, it's definitely having an impact on a on a on a very near term planning basis, particularly as we're coming into 2020. And uh, I think a lot of folks are 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 feeling a slowdown. Um, you know, I don't think it's. It's monumental, but I think people definitely think 2020 is going to be a slowdown from a manufacturing perspective and some of the market demand is off. So, um, you know, I think everybody would, would prefer to have a solution in place to help, again, deal with some of the uncertainty involved. Thanks. Uh, thanks for those insights. Um, so I think um, with that, maybe we can actually just turn to some closing thoughts. So obviously, I think we talked a lot about uh, Brexit, kind of how we got here. Uh, the implications of uh, Brexit, the various options ahead, uh, what it means for global business in terms of their strategy, what does it mean in terms of um, the M&A market and how that may change, what it may mean more geopolitically in terms of positioning of um, other global powers. So with that, um, I wanted to turn it over to uh, go through and have a couple of minutes of quick thoughts from uh, our panelists. Uh, Henry, do you want to kick it off? Yeah, thanks, Matt. So I think, you know, as I said at the beginning, how how we got here was David Cameron trying to appease his party. Where we go, I think, you know, we're in the midst of the election, depending upon who wins or the composition of the next House of Commons. You know, we could actually go through this grindstone again and again and again with three-month extensions if the MPs, um, you know, see fit to not... You know, people talk about enacting the will of the people, but, you know, was the will of the people to leave without a deal or, or leave with a deal, etc. So no, nobody's really clear what that means. The, 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 frightening, the, the frightening thing is that we carry on in this state of paralysis um, and nothing changes and nothing really happens. I think geopolitically for Europe, again, they're in a state of paralysis. They can't do what they want to do because they can't move forward with uh, the UK in this constant, you know, when are you leaving? When are you leaving? Um, when when are they losing their budget contribution, etc.? I think in terms of the broader M&A market, you know, you've, you're contending with a potential global recession, as Brad touched on earlier, 2020, 2021. Um, and what does that mean? You know, will, will people continue to invest in the UK with the customs barriers that aren't there at the moment, but maybe there after Brexit, or will you choose to invest on the island of Ireland or into into continental Europe? You know, 
allied that to things like robotics and automation and um, artificial intelligence, you know, and the changing world of work. So, you know, Brexit is just one of those factors. And then you also have the rise of, you know, the far right, as we touched on earlier. So if you've got Marie Le Pen in France and, you know, the the Catalonia revolution or the Catalan revolution in Spain, etc., and Europe tearing itself apart, then, you know, potentially the next five to ten years could be geopolitically in Europe a very, very stressful time. And, you know, if, if you were looking to invest, why wouldn't you go to the, the Far East and think about emerging economy, emerging economies like Thailand or Vietnam or the, the more mature economies like Singapore, you know, and, and think about putting your money there and, and your businesses there. And in some respects, you've seen that in the UK with people like Dyson moving their research and development and moving their production to Singapore. So, you know, that, that they're all factors you have to bear in mind. Terrific. Great insights, Henry. Um, so this we can cut and, and move back in. Uh, earlier, uh, Henry, but at the point you made, I wanted to ask you, um, so Donald Tusk, that name almost sounds like somebody from House of Cards. But what do you what do you think about the most recent threat that a, another extension uh, may not be granted? Uh, so I think it's an interesting threat because he knew that Boris Johnson's only way out this time was to go for an election. So I think he was playing a game to say, if you go for an election, then you vote for the same composition of the House of Commons, then you come back and you do not proceed or you do not bring, you know, you, you do not move the ball forward, you may not get another extension. So at which point you, you, the, you, the member of member of parliament for the UK, you need to make a choice. You either need to revoke article 50 and not do Brexit or you need to do Brexit, so you need to approve the, approve the deal. Now, what's interesting about that for me is you've had a number of the more moderate MPs who are interested in doing a deal stand down at this election. So there's 55, I think, at the last count, MPs who have decided to stand down. So the ones who have been very supportive in the Conservative Party of doing a deal and not leaving without a deal, and the ones who um, have been kicked out the Conservative Party because they wanted to do a deal are standing with standing as an independent or for the smaller parties and are likely to lose their, their seats. And that means you'll probably see a shift to the harder right or, or the more Boris Johnson-like view in the Conservative Party. So if you end up with a more Boris Johnson-driven uh, Conservative Party or more MPs in the in the image of Boris Johnson, you could end up either seeing his deal pushed through very, very quickly, um, at which point then the UK would leave and leave very quickly. And, and you know, the extension to the end of January means that the UK can leave at any point between now and the end of January. But it's also important to note that that deal doesn't take no deal off the table. That deal allows us, the UK, to move to the next phase of the negotiations, which is to negotiate the trade deal. 
So if in the next two years the EU and the UK cannot agree the trade deal, the UK still leaves without a deal. So, you know, these are just staging gates along that process. Um, so even if the the UK leaves on the 31st of January, fails to negotiate a deal, there's still a no-deal Brexit unless the Houses of Parliament then comes back and says, oh no, we don't want to leave. So, you know, this thing doesn't end on the 31st of January. This this is an ongoing dream or a nightmare, depending on upon your perspective. <laughs> yeah, it definitely seems like an episode that uh, that seems like it's about to end, but um, just uh, leaves a cliffhanger. Feels like celebrating Groundhog Day. <laughs> Terrific. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> thanks for those insights, Henry. Um, uh, with that, uh, Stephanie, do you want to jump in with any thoughts? Sure. I think there's still been a lot of demand for M&A, despite a lot of uh, international tensions and uncertainty in the market. Given the low interest rate environment, a lot of companies are still looking for returns. Private equity firms have been holding on to a lot of excess capital, and that needs to be invested. So, you know, despite some of these uh, events such as Brexit and, you know, some of these trade tensions, uh, a lot of companies have still been operating uh, on some of their strategic initiatives. Um, I think, you know, that said, if you're if you're looking for growth and you're looking to expand your customer base, you know, companies will still push forward. And, you know, we can look to PayPal's recent acquisition of GoPay as a sign that many companies are are still willing to to make that jump. Other companies, they may they may pause and hold off on the deal for a while, but there are still plenty of companies that are willing to push forward. The size and number of transactions might dip a little bit, but they're still happening. Terrific. Thanks, uh, thanks Stephanie, for those insights. Um, I think just uh, adding my two cents to this, um, I think ultimately what I think this is about is uh, there's blood and water, right? So there is definitely uh, the right smell for sharks to jump in. And what I mean by that is if you're a business, uh, there's probably tremendous amount of opportunity that this uncertainty provides. But there is a need for it to be moved fast but move deliberately. Uh, as we talked earlier, there's a risk with regulators changing as you undertake deal process. Uh, we talked about uh, uncertainty related to how the deals may themselves shape up. Um, and uh, just more broadly, I think a lot of traps uh, with the polarized world that Henry touched on in his closing. So you may be very easily making any missteps here that could have more dramatic impact on your business if you upset the right wrong party or you um, do what you typically do, but don't take into account the nuances that this uh, particular situation poses where Brexit is a microcosm. And um, as, as Henry alluded to earlier, we expect to see likely other polarized uh, countries resulting in subpar political outcomes like this, uh, which will have significant implications on business. So this almost becomes a, a, a norm that you need to deal with. And Brexit provides a really great examples to prepare yourself um, as you face similar uncertainty uh, continuing into the next uh, decade. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you to our executive producer, Mukhtar Ahmed, and to our executive directors, George Zhu and Anton Rasatkin. 
And thank you very much to our panelists, especially our chief panelists, Henry Lacey, and then our two guest panelists, Brad Eckert and Stephanie Sparling. Thanks for listening. Here's the Deal m and is an independent educational podcast series focused on providing listeners with information surrounding the forces that shape the deal-making landscape. It is an unsponsored podcast, and as such, all thoughts and opinions reflected in the podcast are attributed to the individual speaker only. This podcast is made possible by the amazing team that has helped us direct and produce it. Our sincere thanks go out to Anton Rasadkin and George Zhu, two junior M&A industry professionals. If you enjoyed the podcast, please remember to subscribe and stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you for listening.